Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Well, good evening or whatever time you're listening to the show. It's Richard and Linda. We're happy to be with you. We just got off an airplane coming back from Mexico City where we had a wonderful time with a, yet another wonderful group of parents. We sometimes wonder how we can be so lucky to spend so much of our time with parents that we really like and that we really enjoy and that feel just as deeply about their kids as we feel about ours. Yes, and this time we were at a private school called the Peterson School, actually schools. They have four major schools, 2,000 students in Mexico City. They're an excellent private school. I think much less expensive than most private schools in the States, but they do an absolutely astounding job of taking great care to give kids a great education. And they invited us to come and talk about values, teaching values in the home. We met with several hundred of their parents, the parents of the children that go to the Peterson schools. And um, it sounds like a funny name for a school in Mexico City, doesn't it? Peterson School. But I know. <laughs> That's what it's called, and we just enjoyed it for several reasons, one of them being that, you know, it's always good. You you sort of have a self-selection process when you have a school that really focuses on values, and I mean really focuses. They had a, a values committee that we met with at lunch before we gave our presentation that night, and the, the committee's made up of teachers and parents who work to be sure that values are not only taught in the school, but lived in the school by the, by the teachers, by the students, and so on. And they kind of, they kind of follow um, a creed that I've, I've been thinking a lot about, a quote that Stephen Covey used to mention often. He used to say, where the mores are sufficient, laws are unnecessary. Where the mores are insufficient, there can never be enough laws. And I think what, what a good school does, and what good parents do as well, is to create mores or standards or sort of subliminal feelings of keeping certain commitments, certain values, and they, those become ingrown within, within children. And then you don't need so many laws because they, they, it's a, values essentially are the positive side of the coin Laws and punishments are the negative side, and I think everyone would rather work on the positive side. I'm sure they would. Um, we learn, always learn a lot when we're in Latin America, and actually we're getting ready to do a five, let's see, five-country tour. Central in America. America, yeah. Well, it's Latin America, but it's Central America, and it really always teaches us so much because I hate to say it, but really, Richard, they're more family-oriented than we are in the United States. I mean, I'm saying on the average. Um, well, there's no question about it. There's absolutely no question that uh, South American and Central American um, and Mexico included are more, they're speaking again of mores or of the sort of standards of a society they are more family-oriented than, than Americans are, and uh, that's that's just, it's partly because of their extended families. Extended families in Latin America are really the fabric of the whole society. Well, and it's partly because they eat together. 
Yeah. They really do. Yeah. They have interesting eating times. They, they're at school early. The kids have to be there at 7.30, so they have a really early breakfast. And then I'm sure they feed them a light lunch um, around noontime or 11.30. Yeah, they do at the school. At the school. And actually, it's outdoors. You didn't see the cafeteria. It's outdoors. I did, yeah. And um, <laughs> I have to say, we were so cold. We were so cold the whole time we were there because... It's winter in Mexico. We thought we were going to the tropics, but no. Well, no, we didn't. Um, there was no heat in schools. There were no heat in the hotels. There was no heat in the airports. It was really cold. But what I was going to say is that after they have cafeteria in that open-air lunchroom, they go home to their families, and they have a major meal at 4.30. That is just the main With meal the of the day. Sometimes With the whole four, 4 to 4.30, and the dads come home, the uh, working moms and dads come home from work and uh, they, I mean, they used to eat and then have the siesta. That's what I think was the best thing. I forgot to ask about the siesta. I've given up on siestas a little bit, just as I'm taking it up as a personal habit. You certainly are. In fact, I had to wake him up in order to do this radio show. That's why I sound um, so alert. And sometimes the dads go back to work Afterwards, I think. But oh, they, they do. do. Most of them. Yeah. Well, except for the traffic in Mexico City. Honestly, I've never seen anything like it ever. We were stuck at a traffic jam. I think we saw all 22 million people that lived there. It was bumper to bumper for an hour and a half, maybe seven miles. Do you think it was five? Oh, miles? more than that. I mean, their traffic. Well, you no, think I mean, about a city where we oh, oh, to the we school. traveled seven yeah. miles. It took us an hour and a half. But, of course, Mexico City is arguably the largest metropolitan area in the world. Some say Tokyo, some say Mexico City, but 25 million people and uh, at least 25 million cars, and I think we saw all of them. I think we did. We were in a big school bus, and honestly, I was white knuckle, and I wasn't even driving because I was in a panic because we were 15 minutes late for the meeting. And interestingly, as those of you who know much about Latin America, I guess, no one was worried about it. They hadn't even sat down yet. They were milling around they were in still coming the in. hospital auditorium, and they were still hanging around, and nobody even knew we were late. So actually, it worked out all right. But we did learn a lot about the traffic in Mexico City. Well, let me get back to what I, what I, what both of us were saying at the outset. Um, you know, some people say, well, you know, Mexico is old-fashioned in some ways in, in terms of their families. Their, their, their extended families continue to live close to each other. They'll get together. And this is across the board. This is young families and, uh, as well as older, more established families. They'll... They'll on Sundays have a, uh, you know, an extended family dinner for 50 or 100 people sometimes. And it's really quite wonderful. And I, I wanted to say I, we spent some time with the founder of the Peterson School. is a remarkable fellow named Marvin Peterson. He's 85 years old, sharp as a tack. And he's somewhat of a philosopher uh, in the positive sense of the word. And he was—he made a very interesting comment. He said, you know, it's the extended family structure that saved Mexico. And, then, and he backed it up by saying this. He said, look, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find a country that has gone undergone more political and economic crisis over the last 30 years than Mexico. I mean, and, and natural disasters as well. Don't forget the big 
earthquake that had happened just before uh, an earlier visit we made to Mexico City. But political corruption, inflation, sometimes as much inflation as 800% a year in the worst, very worst times. And a lot of uh, the drug cartels, I mean, so many problems that you could argue that Mexico would have uh, been brought to its knees, literally, and maybe have disintegrated completely, had it not been for the fact that the family structure stayed strong through all of that. Extended families, families taking care of each other, families doing their best to um, help each other and, and when, when a family member's in need. Now, of course Mexico's got problems. Of course there's a lot of poverty there. Of course um, not many Americans would trade places with most Mexicans. But I think his point was really well taken, that it was the extended family structure and strength that really got Mexico through. And Mexico is now progressing and, and prospering. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, he said that during the earthquake, which was about 10 years ago, and the epicenter was in downtown Mexico City. Mexico City. Was it 18 years ago? No, now, I don't think so. 1985. We'll check our facts after the show. But anyway, uh, quite a few years ago now. And uh, he said the government wasn't there to help them. Families rallied around and went down and started clearing rubble and rescuing people until somebody got there with machinery and so on that could help. But he said it was quite amazing. It wasn't an organization other than families. I'm sure the churches helped. The Catholic Church is so strong there. And I'm sure that they, they organized somewhat just like the LDS Church does in a natural disaster. But he said it was the families that saved the country in that case. Yeah, and economically as well as politically and socially. So, again, we're not trying to make a case for um, let's become more like Mexico because there are a lot of problems. But it's very interesting to Linda and I as we travel to various parts of the world how, how different countries have different strengths and weaknesses vis-a-vis -vis our own expertise or the thing we're most interested in, namely their families. And... Um, and it's very interesting that sometimes a fairly strong family structure can compensate for a very weak political structure or a very weak economy. And it makes us wonder a little bit, and this is certainly not a political show and we're not trying to make political points here, but you wonder if America would be saved by its families. If, if we had crises on the level that Mexico has had over the last 30 years, would we be saved by our families? Now, there's a lot of strong families in this country. There's a lot of strong families in the LDS Church. There's a lot of strong families in many churches. In the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church, of course. And a lot of strong families that don't have any family belief at all. In fact, they don't have any religious belief at all. In fact, some polls show that highly educated, secular Americans, about 20 to 23 percent of the population, um, have, have a higher marriage success rate, a lower divorce rate, and a higher propensity to stay together as families than any other group except the highly go to church every week. That's about another quarter of the American population. Those two groups are the ones that value their families the most. 
some of more and more the working class, middle class um, folks, blue collar workers, unfortunately, are not getting married at all. And we've talked about this before on the show, but the the irony that in in a society where where gay couples are clamoring for the privilege, quote unquote, of having a marriage ceremony, of making a marriage commitment. Most heterosexuals in this country are pretty much giving up on marriage and disregarding it altogether. Well, that's not the case in Mexico. And part of the reason is the Catholic Church, but I think a greater reason is just the ongoing cultural mores of Mexico. And part of the cultural mores also has to do with family, and we'll talk more about it after the break. And that is the fact that kids stay home with their families until they get married. There's so many fine universities right there in Mexico City and Mexico Close that most of the kids stay home in their houses until they get married at 21 or 22. So if we'd been there, do you think you'd have, you'd have insisted that all our kids stay home and go to college down the street? Um, absolutely not. And we're going to talk about that after right the break. Right after the we'll break. We'll be back. Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Iyer. Hey, we're back. And I was just asking as we went on break, uh, Linda mentioned that uh, it is pretty typical practice there for those who can afford college for their kids to keep them at home, just like kind of an extension of high school. They just change campuses and stay at home and go through four years of college and then hopefully find someone to marry, and when they do, then they move out of the out of the home, out of the parents' home. Which was kind of startling. We learned that when we were in Colombia a couple of months ago. That's, I think it's a Latin thing. But um, that just kind of differs from our experience. And isn't it interesting that we go on what worked for us? I'm sure that must have worked for them. And actually, I think that is one reason they're so bonded. They live together for so long. I don't know if our kids would stay home. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna point the finger right at Linda, and I'm gonna tell you, listeners, you may be surprised that mild-mannered Linda said to our kids when they were about 16, "You can go anywhere you want to college, as long as it's quite a long way from here." And no, as long as you don't stay in your own room. Now, we have a lot of friends whose kids stay in their own room for college, and I have nothing against that. I just think for because of our experience, because we felt that we learned half of what we learned in college living away from home. And so, you know, it just we see everything through our own lens. It's okay either way, but we did force our kids to leave. <laughs> uh, and, and, and what's interesting, again, kind of on a global perspective, there, there as, as many of you know, I mean, we're not assuming that, that you haven't traveled also and seen a lot of these different cultures and how they, how they differ with regard to their child-rearing practices and so on. And the other extreme from that is a lot of Asian families now who basically send their kids away to boarding school and they're... 12 years old and sometimes even 8 years old and, and of course England sort of set that pattern uh, centuries ago with British boarding schools and again I don't want to I don't want to sound too biased here because there's probably some good aspects of 
private boarding schools. I'm not sure I know what they are. I'm not sure that I can justify, even when I try to be tolerant, the idea of sending an 8-year-old or a 12-year-old away to boarding school. It seems a little bit like something that parents do for their own sake of freedom. Well, now, and, and I'm trying not to be judgmental. judgmental because most of those parents that we were with send their children away for one year during high school, which I think is a great idea. Oh, you have a gap or a gap year. They have a gap or, year know, between around. high school and college or something. They send them away for a foreign experience. And oh, if they can afford it. If yeah. they can afford it, of course. Or to a boarding school. Many of them send their children at 12. Um, the Petersons send their um, Mercedes away at 12. Yeah. And they're young. Yeah, just, just for one year. And, you know, actually nine months because they come home for the summer. But um, I think so that's you'd say a you, lot. Well, you'd say that's too early, but 23 is too late for them to right. help. <laughs> you'd come somewhere in the middle there. And, uh, you know, again, each parent has to make their own choice. But it's so interesting to see how people relate to this. And um, you do have to wonder, Linda, if the reason that Latin American families are as close as they are on an extended family basis, you have to assume that part of that is that they live with their kids for a much longer time. Mm -hmm. I mean... Living with a child for 12 years and living with a child for 24 years is pretty different. It is, but I just, I've never met a Mexican family or a Latin family that didn't love and respect their parents, their grandparents, um, especially their grandparents. Especially their grandparents. Um, those grandparents that were with us over the weekend, in fact, we went off to a beautiful place in the mountains. Uh, for the weekend with the uh, original uh, founder of the school and his wife, who was delightful, and also the, the present CEO and his wife. Who's the son of the founder, by the way. It's a right. family business right. the school, which you might expect. But uh, we couldn't have been more impressed with their respect for each other, for their love for each other. Um, there were not the huge problems that we see as far, even as far as siblings, they seemed to all get along. They were all very strong-willed, but they all seemed to get along very well. Um, they had sent, the, the current CEO had sent their daughter to Stanford, and she was a freshman there, and they were calling her every day and, you know, concerned about her being there. But then their second one also went to a California school. Then we had the chance to meet their baby who is uh, named Lainey, the same as the grandmother, and she was the most delightful child. She's sparkling eyes. She hadn't come up for the weekend because she had tests. She was getting ready for the She's a junior in high school. She's a junior in high school. But she was just in, totally engaged in the conversation once we got there. Just a delightful child. And so we just couldn't be more impressed with the families and the children and the parents and grandparents that we met. Oh, yeah. I think that's right. Now, having said all those good things, let us just say that uh, a lot of the same problems that affect our families here certainly affect families in in Mexico. And again, we're we're sensitive to the fact that this was a private school. These were upper middle class families who have enough money to send their kids to a to a private school. A lot of the public schools in Mexico are very, very poor and certainly not as equipped or 
as educationally competent as this private school. But um, it was not an American school. We, we speak in a lot of American schools around the world, and some of you are familiar that almost every country has, almost every major city has something called an American school. They often have a British school, they often have a German school. And these represent private schools that cater largely to expats, largely to foreigners living abroad who want their children to have a cultural experience that's similar to what they'd have if they were still in their home country. By the way, we don't, and I'm going to get to the Peterson School, which is not, not doesn't fit that mold, but we are a little, I was going to say critical, but I don't mean the word critical really. We wonder a little about families that live abroad and try to preserve a little piece of Americana, send their kids to a school that's as much like the high school that they left or whatever. We almost feel the opposite. When During the four years we lived in England, we didn't even think about sending our kids to an American school. We sent them to the British schools, and they became very British, and they learned a lot of things they would have never learned had they been in an American school. And the people who go to this Peterson school are largely expats, but not many Americans. There are a lot of Latin Americans from other countries in, in South America and so on. Uh, Spanish. Uh, a lot Italian. of Canadians. There's a lot of yeah. Asians. There's a lot of Europeans. And so it creates a very, I think, they, didn't he say that, that he had schools from 34, students from 34 countries? So it's a wonderful melding pot of cultures right yes. in the school. Think how much kids learn from that. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, just if you're going to England, putting your kids in an American school, or an English-speaking uh, country and putting your kids in an American school. We have some friends that moved to China with four little children, two preschoolers and two in school, and they immerse their children in Chinese schools. Now that that's, is really that's brave. That's adventure. Sending kids who don't speak a word of Chinese to Chinese schools. Yes. Guess what? They learn Chinese in a big hurry. In a big hurry. And, of course, people do that. Our, our three, we have three sons who were working with a program called Imagine Learning that is a, a way to teach English to any language. And they have seen so many situations where kids come from all over the world, from Southeast Asia, from... Italy, France, Spain, Mexico, Cuba, everywhere, and they're just dumped into a school system. They don't understand a word, and boy, the self-esteem goes up enormously when they learn that other language, but it's not easy to do that. Now, if you've been patiently listening and you've been saying, well, this is somewhat interesting, but what does that have to do with me? You know, this is... This is a show about parenting, and yet we've been talking about how things happen in Mexico. How does that, how is that relevant to me? Well, I think, I think basically what we're saying is we need to learn from other cultures, and we also need to sort of be the kind of fiercely independent parents who say, you know, I don't really care so much what the cultural norm is in the area that I live in, I care about what I think I need to give to my children. And I think the strongest parents we know, whether they're in Mexico or whether they're in Provo, Utah, are parents who have a goal 
either consciously or subconsciously that is an extremely difficult goal, and that is I want to have a family culture that is stronger than the school culture or the Internet culture or the media culture or the peer culture. That's my goal as a parent, and I'm going to, through family traditions and through trips we take together and through family laws and family responsibility and a family flag and a family model, whatever I can do, I or we as parents are going to try to have our children's identity have more to do with our family than with where they go to school or with what TV shows they like or what sports teams they're on or what their interests are in uh, extracurricular activities. Absolutely. In fact, uh, so many times we've said in speeches or when parents say, yeah, but, you know, what if everybody else is doing it? My kids just keep coming home and saying, but everyone else has an iPhone at nine. Everyone else has a, a tablet. Why can't I have one? And that's just an example. But um, I love these three words, in our family. You can say, Fine, I'm so happy to hear that. Good for them. But guess what? In our family, this is the rule. And uh, we hope you agree with it because in the long run, we think it will be best for you. You can make whatever uh, rules you want for your kids when it's your family, but this is we feel important. This is really important. And it might have to do with electronics. It might have to do with um, dating. It might have to do with other things. And... It is really important to let them know that your family culture is stronger than anything else that surrounds them. And you want to be, and I used Linda, I embarrassed Linda a little, but I told some women at lunch down there who were saying, well, what do we do? We feel we want our kids to like us. We want to be their friend. And um, I said, well, you need to be more like Linda, and you need to be a strong mom. Your kids don't need a friend. They need a strong mom. Well, with that, we're going to close off today. I do have to tell you that our producer, Ben, looked up the dates on the earthquake <laughs> during the break and told us that it was 1985. So that was a long, long time. Uh, we were closer to being right. You're almost never right. Oh, but, okay. um, anyway. We'll yeah, finish this up. argument off the air, and we'll see you next week on Ayers on the Road. Bye. Bye. 